Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. We have a really special episode today. It's an uh, anniversary episode where we are having a conversation with Lisa Jacobson, the president of Business Council for Sustainable Energy, and Ethan Zindler, who's the head of America's for Bloomberg New Energy Finance, Bloomberg NEF. For the last uh, eight years, BCSE and B- uh, Bloomberg NEF put together a fact book that is helping to tell the story about the revolution that's happening in the energy space, both in production, delivery, and consumption. This year's fact book in particular uh, really talks about the transition over the last decade and the acceleration of what's happening in the clean energy marketplace. This is a similar episode that we did last year, looking at the the 2019 fact book. What I love about this conversation is the research and data that both Ethan brings to the table and then the advocacy experience that Lisa brings to the table is very powerful and can help really continue to move forward the momentum we need on a policy perspective in this marketplace. There are tools in this fact book that we can all use. Uh, I use it all the time in in public speaking and in, in outreach. Uh, you can find it at bcse.org. And I think you'll learn a lot from this conversation. Enjoy. Thanks so much, Lisa and Ethan, for joining me on Experts Only. Oh, we're happy to be here. You know, for, for our audience, this is not the uh, first time you heard us talk about the Bloomberg NEF and uh, Business Council for Sustainable Energy Factbook. We did it uh, previously last year. And with the 2020 edition out, uh, this series has done just an amazing job doc- documenting the revolution that we're seeing in, in energy production and delivery. Uh, consumption across the U.S. In for before diving into the actual report, and I do want to talk about some of the reflections of what you've seen in the last decade, and sort of what you hope to see in this coming decade. Just for to, to level set everyone, uh, can you talk a little bit about Ethan? Why uh, why Bloomberg decided to, to partner with BCSE on this, and you know what you guys sort of see coming out of this report every year. Sure. So again, thanks, John, for hosting, and thanks, Lisa, for partnering with on the, uh, with us on this. Um, the uh, you know the, the goal of the fact book is pretty simple, which is to provide facts. Um, uh, you know, I'm based in Washington, and um, and someone who is part of a firm that tries to provide uh, you know hard economic research and data to those in the investor community primarily, uh, and others in the energy field who are trying to make money or avoid losing money on the energy transition. Um, and so part of what I see is the goal of this is simply to um, provide that same level of sort of up to the, literally up to the minute kind of information to policymakers here. So they are as clued in about all the exciting changes that we've seen gone on in the, uh, in the energy world uh, as people like you and others are at the moment. And Lisa, for, for the Business Council, you, you and your members do such an amazing job helping to tell the story of where the market is, where it's going, and help bringing a different voice uh, around advocacy into Washington so that it's not just about you know, what we're doing for the environment, but it's about jobs and the economy and, 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 and finance and development. How does the, the fact book empower your members, and what do you guys do with it? Uh, when you're going up to the Hill or to state to state capitals and other places to help advocate for policy. Well, thanks, John. And yes, 
I mean, the fact book has really become the foundation of all of the organization's work. And Business Council for Sustainable Energy is primarily a policy advocacy organization. We work in Washington, D.C. for uh, federal policy, but we also work at state and local levels. And as you know, we also have a strong interest in the international energy and climate change agenda. So we participate in the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change process. We also participate in the clean energy ministerial process. And at any given year, there might be other international forums of interest to us. You know, it really started about 10 years ago when the project launched. BCSE had invited, um, at the time, NES, a new energy finance, Ethan and his team to come talk to our board. And we were beginning to see some dramatic changes, but across the sectors that we work in, natural gas, renewable energy, energy efficiency, it wasn't yet really well understood. And then people weren't knitting it together in a way that was understandable to policymakers. And even to some of us around the table, as we were trying to describe this, you know, we're companies and associations, but when we're talking to policymakers, we didn't really have a handle on it in a holistic way. So that was really the, the demand. I mean, we needed it to better understand what was happening to our own industries and how it related to our peers. But we also needed a resource that would focus on the sectors that we represent and do it in a way that was fact-based and that focused on economics and that we could present it to policymakers in a user-friendly fashion. So I think the fact book really does that. And policymakers aren't the only audience. It's obviously journalists. um, It's the public. And it's industry. When we look at who really uses the fact book, about 40% of our downloads each year are from industry. So there's a real need for industry to understand these changes as well. So we, we take this with us everywhere we go. Right now we are kind of in our roadshow period. We just released this a month ago, and we are talking to many policymakers and partner organizations about the findings. It's really an exciting time. Yeah, it is an exciting time. And, you know, the, the fact that you take this both to industry, to state capitals, to, to Capitol Hill, and tell just a, a phenomenal story. And really what I love about this fact book this year is it, it, it's a chance in 2020 to sort of look back over the last decade. And you guys framed it up so well that, you know, 2010 delivered the decade of clean energy. We saw renewable energy nearly double. The jobs uh, in the space just absolutely hockey stick and growth. You know, as you look back, at this last decade, what are some of the things that sort of surprised you the most that made it, you know, what you guys call the decade of profound transformation? Gosh, I don't know where to begin. I mean, you just mentioned a bunch of them. But, I mean, I think, um, and maybe this is just because I focus tend to focus more on power generation and less on, on efficiency than Lisa does. So this part right. is less surprising to her than to me. But the fact that basically we, you know, our, our demand for, for energy overall and for electricity in particular has basically been flat for a long period of time. Um, and, you know, the interesting about, thing about the last decade is that um, it actually was a very long period of sustained economic growth. It wasn't sort of like blockbuster growth, but it was growth. We, we had GDP growth every year of the decade coming out of the Great Recession. And... Um, and yet, um, our demand for, for energy basically stayed flat through the decade. And that, um, so that to me, at least, was a surprising thing if you look at it across the full piece. So, 
And Lisa, I don't know if you have other things you want to Yeah, I mean, two things I'll highlight, you know, is affordability, number one. You know, we were just at a presentation uh, at the Environmental Protection Agency, and one of the comments that and discussion we were having with some of those folks was around, you know, cost reduction. And we, we right. have slides in the back of this in many ways. But one of the slides that Ethan put up was basically looking at power purchase agreement prices in different markets in the United States and contrasting kind of the benchmark price range, um, and then he overlaid, in this case, wind and solar uh, PPA price ranges in different regions. And I don't think I would have, thought, I mean, I would have hoped, but I don't think I would have thought 10 years ago that unsubsidized wind and solar would be more competitive than the benchmark price in as many markets as it actually is in the United States now. So I think that is very surprising to me, but a hopeful surprise, like it was a good, it's a good news story. Um, and that, you know, that's just two areas, but, you know, you could look at battery storage prices coming down 85% a decade. You could look at energy efficiency initiatives and uh, business model changes, which lower costs. Um, and then that is a good segue to the next kind of surprising thing. When I look at the data, it's really this empowered consumer and, you know, looking at the corporate side, but it also is happening um, in residential settings. Just the ability, because of technology and cost reductions, for uh, entities in our economy to manage their energy choices. We just, I don't think I would have imagined it at the scale that it is happening right now. For the corporate PPAs, in particular on renewable energy, uh, at the end of 2019, it was 13.6 gigawatts of corporate PPA signed for um, renewable energy. I mean, that is huge. And when you compare that to, you know, what's being built and, you know, kind of the, the generation mix changes, that's a really strong signal that this is an economic choice and that it's not going to be completely constrained by regulatory change, which can be very slow and very painful. Yeah. And I know you know that well. Yes. So I think those things I wouldn't have anticipated that basically the power of corporate purchases would be a dominant factor in what's uh, driving renewable energy growth. I, I don't think I would have anticipated that it is right now in this moment in time, you know, so powerful in that way. Yeah, I find it interesting. It's not just the fact that they're making these commitments, but they have now sophisticated energy procurement offices that, you know, really didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago. No one had an office that was pushing on policy in Virginia to help bring renewable energy like, like Google does, or, you know, really sophisticated PPA acquisition teams like, like Apple and, and Amazon and Walmart, you know, that, that development is, is really creating these corporate behemoths that are helping to drive the market for, for, for actually for companies like clean capital, right? It's actually who we work with, which is, uh, which is really exciting. So if 2010 to 2020, you know, maybe not facing headwinds, but, you know, there was a slog and a continued growth as the momentum began to come in place. Now we're facing the next decade where you, know, you talked about storage prices coming down, for instance, right? But we're still in the nascent part of the storage market. But, you know, you've got, you know, I think, I think it's 40% of Americans now live in states that have 100% RPSs, including Virginia, which having been a previous Virginia resident, I never thought would happen. And, you're seeing um, state-level policies changing because of the work that Lisa, you and your team are doing. You know, the markets are really starting to to break out here. What is, you know, what does what do you sort of expect to see? Maybe in increments of maybe the next five years of this fact book, and then maybe a decade, you know, a decade back. You know, are, you, are, are these numbers going to going to continue to uh, the trajectory you're going on? Do you feel like changes in what? There's a lot of questions here. Sorry. 
changes in Washington, if they happen, will help continue to accelerate like the, the growth of renewables in the space. You know, from your the depth of experience you've gained looking at this for the last eight years, help us sort of envision where we're going here. So, um, with a with the initial caveat that this is not what you would call a fact, but more sure. a, a hypothesis. And, and really more of the, to be clear, BNES or Bloomberg NES position and, and thoughts in terms of where we see things. Um, but but uh, Ethan, for me, it's own. important that you've had, the, you've had really diving into this data for, for, for a decade, right? So the, the thought analysis coming into that hypothesis is very well defined, right, compared to folks that are just, you know, maybe getting into yeah, this. Well, thank, yeah, no, thank you. And I, I mean, it is. I, I, I would say that... Um, Look, we, we think that in the short, short run, we have a, a boom, particularly this calendar year, uh, and what was set aside coronavirus entirely for a moment, but um, assuming no coronavirus impact, this is scheduled to be the biggest year ever for renewable energy uh, installs in the United States, um, in part because last year was the biggest year we ever saw for renewable energy investment uh, in clean right. energy in the United States. So there's a bit of an echo effect. Also, we're 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 coming up towards the end of a you know the tax credits are ramping down, and so that's kind of front loading some activity. And what and why we think you'll see such a bumper crop of activity this year in particular. Um, we do think the market probably goes down to somewhere to eight to ten gigawatts of renewable build um, per year over the next three or four years after that, and then comes back up again. Um, you know, the challenge overall is, of course, the U.S., the, the, you know, the great news for U.S., you know, competitiveness is that it, um, we're not really demanding a lot more energy or, or electricity. Um, as for new build, though, of course, the opportunities are really about replacing, you know, existing stuff. And so you can only build so much new stuff in a year anyway as a result of that, you know, general trend as we continue to phase through and phase out our existing coal fleet um, overall. So that's that probably on renewables. I mean, on the electric vehicle front, um, you know, the electric vehicle market, in our view, continues to be driven to a large degree by very direct subsidies. Um, And so the tax credit um, cap on the number of electric vehicles that both Tesla and um, GM can sell to consumers where the consumer gets the full $7,500 tax credit in their pocket, that cap inhibits the market a bit. um, And you know, literally at this moment, there's conversations about trying to extend those credits and how that right. might fit within the energy, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but our view on electric vehicles, you know, looking three to four years out is that none of that will really matter um, because the uh, cost of an EV will be so competitive um, that, 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 that sales will just take off. And that, and that is not, you know, again, that's a that's our projection theory, but also it's based on hard facts, which is that we know that um, that as the number of battery uh, manufacturing facilities come online, the price declines, and we've seen that now for for ten years. I'm simply our projections on batteries are simply based on the next tripling of worldwide manufacturing that that we literally can see happening because the plants are being built uh, as we right. speak. So. So that's why we're very optimistic about that overall. Um, but the last thing I would just say about this is that, you know, the, the, the last 10 years have been so dramatic in terms of the amount of change that we've seen. One of the things that I, points that I always like to leave audiences with when I get a chance to speak to them, especially people, utility executives, is 
that one of the most dangerous, you know, uh, and riskiest assumptions that you can make is that where we are right now is where we will be 10 years from now. Um, the, the level of change and the transition that's underway has so much momentum now that, uh, that it's hard for me to see that not continuing. Now, exactly how far we go and how, what the permutations will be, obviously, are, are to be determined. But, but, you know, the world we live in now is a world of change, and that's going to continue. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and Lisa, it sort of leads into the next question for me. Is I actually wrote, recently wrote a piece, actually called it From Greta to the Boardroom, where, you know, arguing that the, the cultural transformation around climate is, is deep and, and happening in a way that I think, um, you know, may have been in the early part of the century, but then sort of faded because of uh, the stakeholder pushback against it. But now it's changing in a way that, you know, I think, it, I believe is pretty permanent. But we're also seeing boardrooms change. You talked about corporate PPAs, for instance. You know, you've got BlackRock leading the way on uh, major commitments around investing. You even had Jim Cramer come out recently calling him sort of the death knell of the oil, the oil stocks, which is a fascinating commentary by him. But I, I want to get back to the corporate side for a second. And, you know, you do have these corporate behemoths that have done a wonderful thing by, you know, by leading by example. But do you see that trickling down now into uh, sort of the next level of, of companies who may not have the resources of an Apple and a Walmart and a Google to do these uh, massive procurements? Well, this is clearly an area an area where Bloomberg NES has done a lot of looking. So I will let Ethan maybe share a couple more thoughts on that. But I, I think the answer for large companies is yes. You know, just as we saw, like the Carbon Disclosure Project and right. you know corporate sustainability initiatives evolve over you know really going back I guess to the late the late eighties, um, and then in the period of the beginning of the two thousands, really that's when the CDP really took off with their questionnaires and, and the like. Those companies are in the spotlight, and there's a lot of opportunity. It's not, just, it's not just work. It is a lot of work, but there's a lot of opportunity. And one of the things that I look at, um, and we, we focus on this a little bit in the fact book, is, yes, there is you know, corporate renewable energy purchases, but now there's green fleet initiatives. Right. There um, are energy efficiency initiatives that you know, have always been important, but, you know, now there's much more sophisticated optimization that can be had. So, you know, I, I really think this is a significant thing. One of the questions that we have, and we haven't actually really talked about this much, Ethan, um, and you, you know, you try to fill this market niche, is like how do we capture small and medium-sized companies? And I guess we could also, you know, we're, we're now talking about the corporate sector, but it, it also is important for communities. You know, how do we enable um, all that wish to benefit from clean, affordable uh, energy to have access to it? So that's, you know, there's a lot of market movers, and they may be very big, and structures are um, getting more comfortable for them, but there's a whole lot of other players that are interested. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's, it's the reason I asked the question, because I feel like we engage with a lot of those sort of mid, mid-market-sized companies, or we, we engage with the you know, city manager of, of a, a small city in Massachusetts who doesn't don't have the capacity or the resources to even, you know, doing a PPA for them, they, they may do one or two, right? They could be significant if they do them correctly, but, you know, they don't have uh, a team of uh, analysts around them that are executing, but they're so critical to that next phase. No, I, I would just agree with all that and say that, um, look, small and medium, you know, enterprises, often do business with bigger enterprises. Right. Um, so if you're Apple and you're putting pressure on all your suppliers to be green, 
then that can, I mean, frankly, first it affects the Foxcons, which are not small companies, but there are others sure. further down the chain. You know, you do see, I do think the influence of bigger companies will eventually be felt by smaller companies uh, and entities. Um, the other thing I'd point out, of course, is that, you know, the good news is that this stuff is generally cost competitive. Um, and so, you know, that you, you can, yes, you, you, this may be new to you if you're a small business or a small um, government agency, but, but the, the numbers can pencil out in many cases. And so, you know, if you, do, if you, if you take the time um, uh, to, to do the work, you can figure out how to, you know, how, how it can work for you. Um, we're even, you know, even anecdotally have started to hear some talk of um, municipals and co-op utilities demanding more from, from more clean energy. And these are, frankly, often, particularly the, the, uh, the rural co-ops have often been the ones that have been kind of most reluctant and resistant. And, and even they are starting to see that it actually might be cheaper to buy clean energy than to continue to buy power from their very old uh, nearby coal plant. Um, right. So there's the good news is that you know the economics are on the industry side, and eventually everyone eventually everyone gets the memo. Yeah, I would love to see your PPA overlay slide. By the way, that sounds really fascinating. I want to ask one more like specific policy question. I do want to get into the tools of the Factbook, which I think people should should understand how to use it, at least in, in what they're what the work they're going to be hopefully advocating for, but. Looking at specifically, you know, we're seeing now the step down of the ITC, you know, pressure on the PTC. Um, you've talked about so the, the uh, electric vehicle taxes and some of the other sort of federal um, policies that have been in place that are starting to move away. What implication did you see maybe in that first phase down the ITC that maybe we, will be a trend here for the next two or three years if we keep taking steps down unless the, you know, unless the government does reverse it? Well, I mean, I don't think, just to be clear, I don't think that solar faces quite the same level of pressure as wind does in terms yeah. of, we haven't historically seen site quite the same kind of, you know, the, P, the classic PTC cliff uh, in solar. I, I also, I'll, you know, it'll be a great experiment. It may not be an easy one for a lot of people, but I would point out that, you know, our research from elsewhere in the world has pretty consistently shown that when the value of subsidies for solar are, are reduced, the, the CapEx has come down, too. Uh, right. and, uh, and I wouldn't be shocked to see that happen here. There is a substantial difference in the dollar per watt cost of a residential PV system in the United States versus one in Germany or Australia or other parts of the world. And I don't entirely, frankly, understand why that exists, but I also do think that, uh, you know, the, the, the removal of some some of the um, you know subsidy will put a lot of cost pressure on U.S. players, both the residential, commercial, and utility scale uh, basis. And we'll frankly, we'll find out just how cheap you can do solar for. And right. I, right. I, cheaper than we're doing it right now. Interesting. Uh, as someone who finances them, it's hard to see going. It's great to see we can keep doing it cheaper and make sure the returns are there. Um, Lisa, can you talk a little bit about the, the fact book? Is such a great tool for folks that maybe aren't full-time uh, evangelists or advocates uh, or policy people, but, you know, that can go to their state capital and advocate for changes uh, around some of the policies. Can you talk about some of the, the tools that the Factbook has that, uh, that can help them? Sure. Well, I think first and foremost, you know, it's all available for free and you can get the Factbook off the BCSE's website there are a lot of tools on the website that make it easy to navigate. And 
we encourage everybody to check them out. And also, we'd like your feedback. If there are things that you don't see um, or ways to make it easier to find what you're looking for, we'd, we'd like to know. But, you know, you mentioned states. So one of the tools that I can, I can mention is that we do a spinoff uh, data sets for states. Maybe it's like 10 different benchmark stats that we pull and we put them out on the website for free in individual state fact sheets. So every state has some additional information that you can, you can glean from the fact book project. Then we also take out um, all the relevant state and regional data and we put that in one deck and we have that easily accessible on the fact book website. So that gives you a sense of, you know, when we're looking on a more um, sector-specific or cross-cutting area, and we have a breakout of state and regional information, you know, all that is in one place. So if I were um, going to be going to a state capital, and, you know, BCSE does do this, you know, I for state X, I would, you know, go to the Factbook website, and I would download that fact sheet and bring it with me. Or when I'm here in Washington and I'm going to a, an office in a particular state, I will bring that information with me. So, uh, you know, we use it a lot, again, for pretty much all engagements we have, whether they're policymakers or, or other audiences, the fact book really is, uh, you know, a cornerstone of our work. Because we think policy is best when it's based on facts. Yeah. You know, I, sometimes I, the trend lines are going the way you want, and you want to accelerate it or at least, you know, not see a deviation. And then there are times when things are just not going the way you want, and, you know, you really need to ramp it up. So all data, no matter what it shows, is important data. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we look at, you know, to give you a sense of how we'll, we'll look at it clean capitals, we actually look across the states and help identify for us where the top targets are for, for the next iteration of projects that are going to be coming out. And, you know, that type of data, we, there's nowhere else we can really get it um, unless you're really diving in and paying uh, nothing against Ethan's business model, but dying in and paying BCSE or uh, BNEF or others right now to do it. Um, it's really powerful. And for advocates out there, it's a great, a great way to, to get your lawmakers sort of educated on what's happening in the market. What, Lisa, one, you know, one thing you did say is you talked about the fact side of this, which I, I have applauded the fact that you guys have such phenomenal data and such fact-based evidence. How do you, in this world we're living in today where facts are becoming less and less relevant sometimes in the debate, how do you guys really amplify uh, sort of the Bible that you're bringing forward here, which is so powerful? I think the best way to do it, you know, we are a business organization, is let the businesses yeah. speak. Because, you know, I can go in to any policymaker and say, you know, X technology is very affordable, right? But when a business comes in and says it, or the business says, you know, I'm a part of this transformation and I generate and create jobs in our town, you know, ears perk up. And, and, and people know that in many cases, even if they're in the sector, you know, it has to pencil out and, you know, they're not doing it just on, um, you know, ambitions and hopes alone. They are doing it because they may share that passion, but they also know that it's viable. So I think for us, that's the best uh, voice we can bring to the table. And now we also have, as you know, Clean Energy Business Network under the BCSC banner, which is small and medium-sized businesses, which I think in some cases, certain audiences are even more compelling. Because they really are 
community members. And we know a lot of the um, updating of market rules that needs to occur really is at the most local level. So here in Washington, we have conversations. You mentioned, you know, um, our budget, our federal budget, or on tax policy, and that's kind of really high up here at the federal level. But when you have to cite, an, you know, community solar, uh, you know, farm, you know, you, you got to get the community excited and involved. And so having local businesses, which is what we can offer, in, in addition to other, you know, community members participate in that conversation is really valuable and speeds change. Can you talk about the business network for, for folks that don't have the capacity to be, for instance, part of the, the core BCSC? You know, how do you, um, how do folks sign up and be, become a part of it? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, Clean Energy Business Network, it's really easy. Um, you just go to our website or theirs, www.cebn.org, and you can sign up right there. And they have lots of different programs. You know, they offer business services as well as engagement with policymakers in communities as well as here in D.C. So, um, you know, there's membership fees, but they're very reasonable. And just to get basic information, they do every two weeks a newsletter, which is amazing. You know, you get that for free. And I think what they're also trying to do in addition to promoting policy and educating on clean energy is build business partnerships. So there's a lot of business networking that comes through the Clean Energy Business Network. So I definitely would encourage anybody, and it, it really is very affordable, uh, recognizing that small businesses, you know, this may not be, you know, they're worried about, you know, kind of keeping their operations going, but this is something that's very affordable and very high value. And is it, a, is it an initiative of BCSC? Is it a program? Is it, like, what's the... Yeah. It is. It was started by Pew Charitable Trust in 2008, right. and about three years ago, um, it transitioned from Pew to the BCSE. So it's an oh, independent great. initiative of the BCSE currently. Oh, excellent. That's great. I did not even know about that. We, uh, Clean Capital will be joining soon, uh, as many of you should. Yay! <laughs> as many of you should. Uh, you know, for, uh, for folks that, that aren't aware of BCSE, you can go to their website, which is bcse.org, and find the fact book there and all the tools that, that Lisa mentioned. You know, we'll have that linked at our Clean Capital website as well, cleancapital.com. Uh, is there any sort of leaving, any message you'd like to leave with, uh, uh, with the audience before we sort of have you back next year to, to look back at actually how the coronavirus affected all this? Uh, I, I don't know. I guess I would just say that, um, you know, that uh, at a point I made earlier, but just, that, you know, the, the level of uh, at the, the, the volume and the velocity of change in the sector is, is incredible. And it, and it is not looking like it's going to let up anytime soon. Uh, and so, you know, just being aware of where we are at this moment and also understanding the, the, those rates of change, I think, is important for anybody now involved in either policymaking or development or whatever, um, because, uh, because, because where we are now is, is definitely going to be different from where we are two years, five years, ten years from now. And so um, getting the very latest information is really critical. And that is one thing I'm very proud of about this fact book is that we, you know, we put it out as soon as we can, um, you know, into the new year about the immediate prior year. Uh, because if you're looking at data that is, frankly, a year or two old, as you know, John, about even something as simple as the cost of a solar module, right. um, you can be really wrong. Um, and so it's, up to, it's really important to have very current data and information. And Lisa, any thoughts? Well, just, you know, the audience that you have, you know, all 
all of the individuals and all the organizations and companies that listen to this podcast, I mean, you're on the front lines and, you know, you mentioned Virginia. I mean, that's just one example. There are many examples of change, but, you know, that happens because we all work together on a common goal and that's where we got to be, you know, and we have some really, um, we have some really ambitious uh, essential objectives and, we won't get there if we don't listen to each other, talk to each other, and try to find, you know, a common path forward so that we can all succeed. So, I mean, the council is kind of a, a small microcosm of that ambition. We're very diverse in terms of our business models and the sectors we represent, but we try to align and support each other. It's not always easy, but that's the that's the premise. So, um, yeah, I would just say you look forward to being here next year hoping that, you know, what we're experiencing in in this very moment in time with the coronavirus subsides and uh, we're all able to to focus on uh, having, have good health and focus on other ambitions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for for taking the time today. I appreciate it as always and and can't wait to have you back next year. I sort of challenge the both of you guys now that you have a almost a decade worth of data here. You did turn this into a TED talk. It's such phenomenal stuff. I use your data all the time when I'm speaking publicly because it, it does tell the, the, not just the facts, but really incredible story about the growth of our, of our, um, of our market. And, and really the, the fact that we're just on the beginning of this uh, amazing clean energy revolution. So thank you. Thank you. And, and for our audience, you can get a copy of the fact book at, at bcse.org. Uh, I challenge you either to join BCSC or to to join the uh, the Clean Energy Business Network, uh, so you can stay involved and utilize the tools that, and help tell the story of what's happening uh, both uh, in your state capitals and in, in Washington D.C. As always, please continue to listen, and you can get more of our episodes at cleancapital.com. Thanks to Carly Batten, our producer, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.